0: Welcome to Witch and Goddess. I'm your host, Patty Black. I'm a witch, a teacher, and priestess. Goddess devotion is an essential part of my craft, and many goddesses are my cohorts in magic. Each episode, we explore a different goddess, her lore, and how to connect with her energetically and magically. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Before we head into today's topic... I want to let you know that I'm currently looking for personal stories from listeners for an upcoming episode. I want your true stories of a memorable or profound experience with a goddess. It could be an experience during ritual or even an amazing vision or dream. You can share your stories by messaging me at Witch and Goddess Pod on Instagram, or you can visit the Witch and Goddess page at anchor.fm and record a message. If you leave a recorded message, I'll assume you're okay with it possibly being played in an episode. Also, anchor messages are limited to about one minute each. You can leave more than one message, but plan it out so that you're not cut off. I can't wait to hear about your experiences. I want to thank all deities mentioned in this episode for lending their names, their myths, and their energy. I thank them for their lessons and presence. Now, travel with me over oceans and back thousands of years, through time, over deserts, to an ancient mountain range. There, hidden between peaks, we find a great staircase, descending deep within the earth. These stairs lead to the first of the seven gates of the underworld, guarded by the Sumerian god Nedi, and beyond the seven gates awaits the shadowy cavern of Kur, the land of the dead, also called Urkala, or the Great Land, and its ruler, the great goddess Ereshkigal. Her name means Queen of the Great Below, or Lady of the Great Place. Know that great in this context means vast, and it's a reference to the enormous land of the dead. Ereshkigal's realm The Mesopotamian underworld was also known as the Land of No Return. It was described as an enormous expanse of gloom under the earth, where the dead drank from dirty puddles and ate dust. Ereshkigal ruled over these souls from her palace, located near the entrance to the underworld. Her first recorded mention was around 2000 BCE, although she was probably known as much as 300 years earlier. She's mentioned in The Death of Urnamu, a poem about a beloved Sumerian king. It describes the various offerings and gifts the king presented to the gods. Of Ereshkigal, it says To Eric Gala, the mother of Ninazu, in her palace, the shepherd Urnama offered a vessel which he filled with oil, a queenly pollo robe, and the divine powers of the netherworld. Keep in mind that this is a poem written by a king in honor of his late father, who was the beloved ruler before him. It's not surprising that the popular king is depicted as noble, honorable, and almost equal with the gods. It goes on to say, At the command of Erikagala, all the soldiers who had been killed by weapons, and all the men who had been found guilty, were given into the king's hands. Er Ernamu is... Recorded honorably in legend by being written into the myths of the gods, and having Ereshkigal honor him with the responsibility of some of the souls in her realm. In these references, Ereshkigal has been depicted as a fair and wise leader. It seems that the Sumerian people respected Ereshkigal and acknowledged her sovereignty over the land of the dead. But the death of Urnamu is much less famous than a later myth, the descent of Inanna. This Sumerian poem deals primarily with Inanna, Ereshkigal's younger sister, and despite being the titular character, I wouldn't say Inanna is represented in a flattering way in the tale. There are contradictory interpretations of the myth and equally contradictory assessments of Inanna's behavior and character, but to put some context around the descent, we need to look at circumstances that have been caused by Inanna's behavior in an earlier tale, The Epic of Gilgamesh. Specifically, Inanna lusts after the demigod Gilgamesh, who rejects her, citing her shitty treatment of her previous lovers. She's enraged and asks her father, the Sky God, to send the bull of heaven to punish Gilgamesh. Keep in mind, the bull of heaven is Gugulana, Ereshkigal's earliest husband. When he shows up, he brings seven years of famine to the land. Again, not awesome of Inanna to summon this kind of energy to her land and people to avenge her vanity. Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu fight the bull and kill him. So, Inanna's pride has caused famine and the death of her sister's husband. Fast forward to the descent of Inanna. She is preparing to visit the underworld to attend the funeral rites of Ereshkigal's husband, despite the fact that it's known that one cannot return from the land of the dead. I mean, really, it's literally called the land of no return. Inanna makes elaborate preparations in the event that she doesn't return in three days. It's almost as if she knows that her sister won't be happy to see her. huh? And she's right. When informed of Inanna's arrival, Ereshkigal displays obvious displeasure. It says, she slapped her thigh and bit her lip. I love that description, you know? I can just imagine it. It's still, it's such a human way to express barely controlled rage. Ereshkigal says that Inanna must shed a piece of her royal clothing or accessories at each of the seven gates. By the time she's reached her sister's throne room, Inanna is completely naked, and you'd think she might be humbled, right? Oh no. When Ereshkigal rose from her throne, Inanna started towards it. And although translated in widely varying wording, it's generally accepted that Inanna was making a play for her big sis's throne. Apparently, she had a reputation and a pattern of seizing the territories of other divinities. And so the tale says, The judges of the underworld surrounded her. They passed judgment against her. Then Ereshkigal fastened on Inanna the eye of death. She spoke against her the word of wrath. She uttered against her the cry of guilt. She struck her. Inanna was turned into a corpse, a piece of rotting meat, and was hung from a hook on the wall. So if you're reading a lot of modern descriptions of Ereshkigal, Many of them will just say that she killed her sister and that she hung her from a hook. Without the context, it sounds brutal. She seems like a monster. Now, the story goes into much more detail about how Inanna is eventually restored to life. But there's still a debt to be paid. She cannot leave the underworld without sending replacement for herself. After much deliberation, and because he's not mourning her supposed death... Inanna sentences her husband to take her place in the Underworld. Now, there's much outcry about this, and it's finally decided that he and his sister will take turns, each spending half of the year in the Underworld. All because of Inanna's pride. And does Inanna bear any consequences? Depends on who you ask. Some interpretations say that she has her eyes open to the truth of her husband's disloyalty upon her return, and that's a consequence. In fact, a widely held interpretation of the whole myth is that Inanna's descent represents the twofold nature of the goddess and ourselves. They claim that Ereshkigal and Inanna are two sides of the same goddess, Ereshkigal representing the shadow and Inanna our conscious self and ego. Inanna sheds all of her outward and inauthentic symbols of power. She finds herself fully humbled before her shadow, Ereshkigal where she experiences the death of the ego. Now it's true that the Jungian concept of shadow confrontation and integration is a modern one that would almost certainly not have been part of the original intent of this tale. However, here we are in the year 2021 and the Descent of Inanna is a beautiful and undeniable parallel to the shadow work journey through which so many of us are finding transformation. Original intent or not, Ereshkigal and Inanna have lent their names and their mythology to this modern spiritual journey. And I think that if you are connected to either of them, they would be excellent guides for you in that work. Another lesson found here lies in the name, the land of no return. Once you go through something transformative, once you go beyond, you can't go back to who you were before with new experiences, with new perspectives. Even the same old landscape looks different, changed. You have new eyes. Now, if you have any doubt about this, who this story is really honoring, look at the final lines. Holy Ereshkigal, great is your renown. Holy Ereshkigal, I sing your praises. I think it's important for us to be familiar with the descent of Inanna because, as briefly as it mentions Ereshkigal, it remains one of the main sources of historical information about her. And when you look at the text, Ereshkigal is actually depicted as a fair and strong leader. However, decades worth of terrible, surface-level summaries of the descent of Inanna have led to Ereshkigal being frequently dismissed as a terrifying and evil spirit. You may come across statements like this, Queen of Death, who murdered her own sister and leads armies of the dead. Without any context, that seems evil. But when we study the sources, we see that Inanna was far from innocent. And I know, I'm being pretty hard on Inanna, who I covered very favorably in a previous episode. Overall, Inanna is still a very beloved goddess. She is celebrated as the Queen of Heaven, a goddess of great beauty and positive sexuality. A veritable prom queen of ancient goddesses. And like all of us, she comes with a shadow side. I fucking love a troublesome goddess. One who proudly exhibits bad behavior and selfish motives. Not because this is aspirational, but because if goddesses can be messy and still be loved and revered, then so the fuck can I. If I can love these goddesses in all of their glory and mess... It makes it so much easier to love my own toxic traits, my past, all of it. And if I can truly love my own shadow, then I can heal. But back to Ereshkigal. I've said that in her prime, she may not have been feared in the way we currently understand. That's because our modern Western worldview of death is really unhealthy and largely framed by Christianity. Speaking as a U.S. citizen, our deep aversion to the very topic of death dramatically colors the way we react to this subject matter, and that aversion is rooted in fear. We need to take a step back when looking at unfamiliar cultures. The Mesopotamian underworld is not equivalent to the Christian hell. Ereshkigal is not equivalent to Satan. She's the ruler of an important realm. It's not as glamorous as being the queen of the heavens, but she maintains order in all the realms by enforcing the rights of the underworld. In some cases, she's considered the caretaker of the dead. So please, let's look at the articles we find about deity, even the ones in published books, and especially the ones found online with some scrutiny. Are they applying any historical context to a myth? Or have they simply copied and pasted another article proliferating someone else's bad research. Someone else's beliefs and experiences with a goddess, although valid for them, won't necessarily apply to your interactions with that spirit. Ereshkiel is a great example of this. She's often referred to as a dark and difficult goddess, and yet she has many followers who describe her as loving and even motherly. And like us, she can be all of these things. As individuals, I believe we often get exactly what we need from a divinity. I propose that despite her role as the great queen of the land of no return, ruler of the realm of the dead, and the fact that she did kill her own sister, Ereshkigal is not an entirely scary, aggressive spirit. In fact, is it possible that our own personal expectations and beliefs around the nature of a divinity flavor the way we eventually experience them? If I met the friend of a friend at a party, and they greet me by saying, hi, Patty, you're a mom, right? Jane has told me so much about your daughter. In that moment, I'm very likely to then talk about parenting or kids. Clearly, it's something I have in common with this person. If I run into them again, I may recall that we spoke about parenting previously, and a second interaction might be similar. Of course, I'm much more than my role as a mother, I could happily talk about many other topics, but that is what this person knew about me. That is the aspect this person appealed to when meeting me, and so that's what I delivered. Just something to think about. Ereshkigal is unique in her role as goddess of the underworld. While male gods ruled the underworlds of the Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans, and other major cultures. Ereshkigal was one of, if not the only female deity to hold this position, even after gods replaced goddesses, and despite having a male consort. In later tales, it's said that she shared some of her authority over the underworld with her husband. Hecate is also a well-known goddess of the dead, and her horde of ghosts and untimely dead follow her as a night-wandering goddess, but she's not considered to rule the underworld. So what does Ereshkigal look like? The Burney Relief, also known as the Queen of the Night, dating from around 1700 BCE, is sometimes said to represent Ereshkigal. You've probably seen the terracotta relief. It depicts a nude woman with wings standing on the backs of two lions and attended by owls. She holds symbols of power, and beneath the image are lions and our images of mountains. But this piece is just as likely to be said to represent inanna ishtar and even lilith it's not surprising to find few images of her according to joshua j mark of worldhistory.org mesopotamian beliefs held that creating an image of someone invited the attention of that person or being further statues of the gods were believed to contain the essence or presence of that divine being This is a belief that survives today many modern pagans polytheists and more consecrate deity statues as a housing for that specific spirit so of course most people did not want to invite the personal attention of the queen of the dead by owning or creating a statue so what is Ereshkigal's connection to zombies aside from being the queen of the dead Encyclopedia of 5000 Spirits by Judica Illis reports that when her lover, Nurgle, was called away from her, Ereshkigal, quote, threatened the supreme authorities with a zombie army, unless Nurgle was returned to her. Now, I'd like to note that according to my admittedly amateur research, Inanna threatened a zombie invasion first. In the Akkadian version of Inanna's descent, she says, if you do not open the gate for me to come in, I shall smash the door and shatter the bolt, I shall smash the doorpost and overturn the doors, I shall raise up the dead and they shall eat the living, and the dead shall outnumber the living." Ereshkigal was worshipped and revered as far as Anatolia, Egypt, and southern Arabia. Her primary Mesopotamian temple was found in the ancient city of Kutha, which would have been located in what we now know as Iraq. You may see mentions of her connections to Hecate. Greeks and Romans may have syncretized Ereshkigal with Hecate. In a spell which has been dated to the late 3rd century AD, Hecate is called Hecate Ereshkigal and is called upon in the magical working to eliminate fear of punishment in the afterlife. In fact, Ereshkigal's name does appear within some modern revelatory Hecatean practices. At Hecate's request, outside of her role as the Queen of the Dead, Ereshkigal has many associations. She's a sister, a lover. She's a queen who embodies sovereignty and strong leadership. She's connected to sister wombs, ancestors, spirit communication, death, rebirth and resurrection, shadow, and of course zombies. If you're considering creating an altar or leaving offerings for Ereshkigal, I would suggest the following correspondences. The number seven the gemstone lapis lazuli, bones, lions, snakes, scorpions, and the colors royal blue and gold and black. It's said that all offerings made to the dead eventually make their way to Ereshkigal. In her book, Dark Goddess Craft, Stephanie Woodfield covers Ereshkigal beautifully. She also offers great advice for meeting the great goddess in ritual she recommends not wearing jewelry or other regalia as a sign that you come to her gates humbly and honestly. One of our listeners, Cecilia Hayes, was kind enough to share some of her perspectives and insights as a priestess of Oreshkigal. Here's what she said. I was first called to Oreshkigal around 2006. She came in like a hurricane. Dreams were a primary method of communication. My introduction to her was a dream in which she invited me to sit at a table with her. There was a pitcher of milk on the table, and we sat as friends talking and drinking the milk. My relationship with her deepened when one of my closest friends found herself with cancer. While walking through the transition of dying with someone was heartbreaking, it was profound and gave me a different perspective of the gods. Ereshkiel is commonly thought of only as a scary, death-dealing deity, but what I have found is that she is very much love. And while she could not stop my friend from dying, she was with me every step of the way. The instances where I had intercession from her, without a doubt, have been numerous. My relationship with her has been reciprocal and intimate. While I do not find her motherly, I know others have. Working with her and taking the steps to be her priestess has no doubt changed my life. The connection with her really is a descent into the underworld but it just asks you to do shadow work and face yourself, really looking at your behaviors, your actions, and taking control of your life. Many people think that being a priestess is solely serving a god, but it's also serving yourself. The things that I do as a devotional priestess are spiritual coaching and mentoring to guide people out of abusive and toxic situations, as Ereshkigal did for me. From my experience, symbols of Ereshkigal have been milk, orchids, butterflies, wine, and citrine. Thank you, Cecilia. Cecilia offers tarot readings and spiritual guidance. You can find her on Etsy under The Empress and the Unicorn. Remember to submit your personal goddess stories for the upcoming episode. If you'd like to work with me, you can find out about one-on-one sessions and my group courses at blackbirdmagic.com. That's magic with a CK the Witch and Goddess Coven is growing on Facebook. We are exploring themes like honoring and transmuting our trauma, the importance of the title witch, magical activism, how the divine feminine is relevant to non-femme people, and more. Members enjoy monthly coven circles over Zoom, monthly guided meditations, custom spells written by me, and a beautiful witch community. You can find details at blackbirdmagic.com. If you like the show, please subscribe and tell your coven. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Witch and Goddess Pod. I love emails and messages, so let me know about your goddess experiences at witchandgoddesspod at gmail.com. Sources for this episode are Dark Goddess Craft by Stephanie Woodfield, Encyclopedia of Spirits by Judica Illis, World History Encyclopedia article by Joshua J. Mark. Find Your Goddess by Sky Alexander.